I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor. Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, and from Accenture, David Parker, who's a managing director there in the financial services practice. Today, we'll be talking about the democratization of finance. Following a week-long series in the FT, we'll be looking at the ways in which banks and other innovators are really democratizing the world of finance. Secondly, to Greek banks and the effect of the arrival in power of the new Greek government. What does it mean for the Greek banking sector? And finally, structural reform in Europe. Are the Likonen reforms dead? To that first topic, though, of democratisation, or um, maybe we should have a question mark at the end of it. It's certainly a buzzword which a lot of financial services innovators are using these days. We've run a, a week-long series, as I was saying. Emma, you've been very much a part of that whole spread of stuff that we've been writing about and doing videos on and other data-driven stuff. Do you think this really is a, a new era for finance? I mean, are these new ways of doing things really bringing finance to the masses in a way that hasn't happened before? Yes, it certainly is. There's been quite a change, which has been largely spared by two factors. So on one side, you've got the traditional lenders retrenching following the credit crunch, um, having to scale down, sell off assets and not being able to lend as much as they traditionally did. And that's happened in tandem with the rise of digital across society and uh, through every sector, pretty much. So these two factors have really come together and spurred a rise in alternative sources of financing and other sorts of products, innovative ways to invest. So one of the most democratising tools to have emerged over the past decade is the Exchange Traded Fund, for example, which has really given um, your typical retail investor access for the first time to a diversified range of shares and investments and asset classes at a very low cost. And this has come at a time when banks have removed some of their funds and products and asset managers have been charging pretty high amounts for active fund management. So for example, an investor has been able to gain access to the gold price for the first time without having to store bars of gold in their house at a very low cost. Yeah, all interesting stuff. And I suppose if I had to pick the other three big areas that we've talked about in this series, I suppose it would be peer-to-peer lending, which is something that you've written about, Emma, quite a lot. Maybe the payments innovations that we've seen, particularly in parts of the emerging markets that have brought finance to an untapped population previously. And then finally, cryptocurrencies, where we've seen Bitcoin, obviously, as the most notable innovation. If I could bring David Parker from Accenture in to the debate here, what do you think this means for the traditional banking world? I mean, it's a threat, really. But is it also an opportunity? I think it's both, Patrick, clearly. You know, the take-up of the existing sort of digitization services for banks you know, has been phenomenal. I mean, you know, one of the UK banks estimates, you know, something like 200,000 customers access their digital bank between 7 and 8 every morning. And, you know, another sends 3 million SMSs a week, you know, to its customers. So the opportunity to build on what they've got 
and you know the existing relationship they have with the customers you know is absolutely there if they do that right then they can gain Ab- absolutely but as yeah. you say the threat you know is very much there as well so you know if you look at the sorts of players you know who are coming into the market who are trying to pick off pieces of the existing banks franchise whether it's the apples or the googles or maybe it's actually some of the challenger banks coming in the opportunity to really engage and build that affinity with the customers you know is there and it's you know all the evidence points to the fact that when you can do that actually the customer loyalty the customer engagement the customer's you know willingness to to buy more products actually goes up as a result and then the danger is that those relationships are lost by the banks and it's just one of the ways in which the more profitable the more essential parts of those those financial services relationships are then lost to the competition Um, yeah i mean we see it as a chance for banks really to you know establish themselves actually at the center of their customers lives i mean in accenture we call it the everyday bank where they're not just doing sort of traditional banking types of services but they're helping their customers work out where to spend money how to spend it wisely those types of choices that they have in terms of how to make investments you know all of those things are things that banks can do and there's examples you know around the world and and here in the uk people like lloyd's using cardlytics in terms of you know taking advantage of offers in turkey places like guarantee you know uses a mobile app which uses gps to advise you in terms of where to spend based on your location all these things are possible but if the banks don't grasp that then actually some of the nimbler competitors, the more agile ones, are going to come in and banks are just going to end up as a utility that's just routing cash from one place to another. One of the most interesting elements of our package over the past week was, I thought, was a, an interview that uh, Martin did with Anna Bottin, the head of Santander, in which she was highlighting actually going on the offensive as a best means of defense talking about data storage capabilities that the bank could get involved with interesting how banks might evolve i suppose away from banking into the broader management of of services for their corporate customers I mean, I think there's some f- fantastic examples out there actually within the banking sector. I mean, in Australia, you know, Ubank, which is part of NAB, have effectively, with, with people like you, have aggregated data and they're providing it back for more than a million customers saying people like you spend this sort of money on food in these types of areas. And, and really, you know, that's absolutely outside of traditional banking services, but it's enriching, you know, their customers' lives and really sort of helping them in terms of, you know, make smart financial choices. Learning from Amazon and Google and basically uh, maybe taking it to another level. Absolutely. Data is one aspect, but I also think, you know, there's more digitization to come in things like biometrics, you know, in things like wearable technology and augmented reality. All of those disruptions are actually going to be good for consumers in terms of giving them more choice and giving them more opportunity to actually spend and purchase wisely. If I just bring Emma back in for one final point here. One of the caveats that we've highlighted in this series has been how much is this really democratising the world? Uh, In many cases it is, but for example, if we go back to your especially subject of peer-to-peer lending, we are seeing developments, aren't we, in the US in particular and to an extent here in which actually it's no longer individuals funding these lending platforms as was the kind of great white hope, I suppose, when they were first conceived but it's in increasingly becoming an institutional space where we just get an alternative to traditional banks in the form of hedge funds or big in- insurers or asset managers. Does that take the shine off the whole concept, do you think? 
To an extent, um, it's a bit ironic that it's termed peer-to-peer when, as you say, we've now got institutions, hedge funds and the like coming on board, getting involved in order to take out whole loans to get much higher yield and therefore crowding out the peer that these platforms are supposed to serve in the first place by providing them access with um, investment opportunities that yield much higher than um, other assets at the moment. So yes, it does seem to be a a bit ironic, but some platforms are less concerned by this because they believe that in fact this is going to fuel the development of their platforms and push it more into the mainstream and make it more acceptable for sort of individuals to come on board. It's a sort of seal of approval in that sense. Well, it'd be interesting to see how profitable businesses can make that. One of the stories we wrote about was uh, the likes of Goldman Sachs and uh, Societe Generale looking at securitizing invoice receivables, for example. So many interesting areas to keep a, a watch on throughout 2015. Thank you very much, David and Emma, for your thoughts on that. Let's move on to the second topic, Greece, um, or particularly the Greek banks, and what the fallout for them will be from the new government. Martin, you've been looking into this whole topic over the past few days. Interestingly, Monday saw Yanis Varoufakis, the Greek finance minister, come to London, the second stage of a, of a European tour. He was in Paris over the weekend, came to London, met George Osborne here, but also sat down with investors on Monday evening as he tried to sell the Greek story to the city. What reception did he get? Much better than the last time the Syriza party came to London when hedge fund managers described the the party's potential election as the new government of Greece as a disaster waiting to happen. This time, people described it as pretty positive. It went quite well. The message from Mr. Varoufakis was uh, seen as reasonably sensible. The bailout program hasn't been a great success for Greece. It's plunged the country into a very deep recession and imposed pretty painful social costs on the country. So there is some sympathy with what he's saying. Investors also, you've got to remember, don't have that much at stake, the private sector institutional investors. The people who've got something at stake are the Troika, so the state-level IMF, European Central Bank, European Commission. They're the ones who've got something at stake here. Because they are the ones that own the Greek debt, basically. Yeah, because the private sector had their sovereign debt renegotiated back in 2011, 2012. So they've already taken the pain. It's the Troika that are front and centre on this now. And, you know, speaking to the FT last night, Mr. Varoufakis outlined some of the ideas, uh, what he called a menu of debt swaps that he's proposing. One idea is to index a new type of bonds to nominal economic growth so that uh, people, you know, get paid back as and when Greece's recovery starts to take hold. Performance-related bonds. Exactly, or perpetual bonds, which I think is probably where we're going to end up and where investors I spoke to last night think we're probably going to end up, where instead of constantly extending this huge debt burden that Greece has, why not just make them perpetual and admit that they're never going to be paid back? But there are still big doubts about whether a quasi-communist party with some pretty radical ideas can come to some kind of agreement with the Troika, particularly with some of the fairly entrenched political positions in Germany, which is driving you know, a lot of the positions of the ECB and the European Union. But as I said, you know, investors at the moment, they don't think Greece is investable because there's this huge risk that there won't be a deal and therefore Greece will exit the eurozone with dire consequences for the Greek economy. But if there is a deal and Greece can move forward and confidence is restored in the banks because deposits have been flying out the door at Greek banks since the election 
of Syriza, then, you know, I think investors could see uh, potential for investing. Well, we've seen a reflection of that kind of mixed thinking among investors, haven't we, in the share prices of the Greek banks, which plunged last week, and they've recovered somewhat uh, very volatile, um, but um, arguably encouraged by what they heard from the finance minister over the last couple of days, I guess. Absolutely. Let's move on to our final topic, albeit briefly, to look at the European structural reform of banks, or perhaps not. That's basically the news, yet another sign that maybe a nail has put, been put in the coffin of the so-called Likonin proposals for splitting or erecting a kind of ring fence between the investment banking activity and retail banking activity of the universal banks in Europe. What exactly happened last week, Martin? So on Friday, there was a meeting organised by Latvia, holder of the EU's rotating presidency, which involved officials from France, the UK, Germany, Sweden and the Netherlands to talk about potential compromises on structural reform of banks. Now, neither the European Commission nor the ECB were invited to these talks, and that has provoked suspicion that some of the larger countries in the EU are ganging up to try and water this down or allow enough flexibility for national regimes so that each one can pretty much look after its own interests and keep the banking system more or less in shape in their own countries. Now, what the ECB is very worried about is some kind of patchwork of inconsistent regulatory frameworks within the EU, which again goes against the idea of creating a harmonised single market in financial services. Now, of course, what we've already got in the UK in law are the Vickers reforms, which kind of go down a similar route, albeit from a slightly different direction. France and Germany have both taken moves to safeguard, to some extent, the investment banking operations of their banks. It does feel as if that kind of fracturing has already happened. And it's now potentially going to be rubber stamped by the direction of of policymakers. Yeah, and um, a lot of this will come down to our very own Lord Hill, who has already said that he would consider withdrawing the proposal entirely if there is protracted political deadlock. He, of course, is the commissioner in Brussels responsible for financial services reform. Yeah. So as I say, it'll it'll fall to him to try and bang heads together and get some kind of agreement on this. You know, you've got basically a political difference of opinion with the centre-right parties in the European Parliament being in favour of giving national regulators quite a lot of flexibility in how they structure structural reform, so to speak. And you've got the Greens and the Socialists saying, no, 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 if we do that, we'll just end up with a patchwork. We need to lay down some fixed laws on separating. What they want to do is separate out the casino-style risk-taking investment banking side of banks away from the um, government-guaranteed high street retail consumer side of banking. And in particular, they want to hive off what they see as the most risky part, which is the proprietary trading, banks betting with their own money in financial markets. Well, time will tell whether that's really a dead plan or not, but it certainly looks as if it's heading that way. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Emma and our guest from Accenture, David Parker. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking and also with the democratisation series, especially at ft.com slash democratising finance. Banking Weekly was produced by Alex Wisniewska. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.